So we are about halfway through a series at the moment called Bigger. And it's a way of summarizing the whole of the amazing book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, in simple terms, is a book written by someone that we do not know, ultimately God, through a human. And he's writing to a bunch of Jewish Christians. And the, the, the main challenge seems to be that now that they're following Jesus, that actually they're facing difficulties, persecutions, and the culture around them is not rejoicing that they're following Jesus, but actually is, is in many ways reacting badly to that, is, is not rejoicing with it at all. It's very similar in many ways to the culture that we live in. And today, as we look at chapter 7, I hope many of you might have got my little uh, Facebook message um, encouraging you to read this chapter. Um, because at first glance, chapter 7, um, it might have like, like in my Bible at the, at the top, it says the priestly order of Melchizedek. And uh, when you first read this chapter, if I'm honest, it can seem a little bit confusing. And it, you can look at it and think it's talking about this guy called Melchizedek and what on earth is going on. But actually, when you look really at the very heart of what this chapter is all about, there is one word right in the center that if you truly get, it unlocks the entire rest of the chapter. One word, hope. You see it here in verse 19. A better hope is introduced. Now, hope is defined as a feeling of expectation and desire for something specific to happen. It's a feeling of expectation and desire for something specific to happen. Now, if you've been a Christian for any kind of length of time, you'll probably know that the right answer as to what we are meant to hope for above all else is one person and his supremacy. And his name is Jesus. We know the theory, but the reality is, I find in my heart, the older I get, the more I look, the more I realize that actually my heart can, my head can think that, but my heart actually effectively puts its hope in a hundred other places. I mean, it's, it's almost embarrassing to admit, but when I was thinking about this, I was, I was thinking, do you know what? I, recently I got a new jacket, rather nice wax jacket, and I ordered it online. And even though it was coming the next day, those 24 hours of waiting were like, you know, there was little else on my brain, if I'm really honest, apart from the arrival of this jacket. And here it came and it's lovely and it's here today, so you can meet my jacket if you want to. But the reality was, was that actually, the reality was that although I still love Jesus in that time, my heart was actually, in many ways, set on something as Silly as a jacket. I, I, I know I can see this in my life. I, sometimes we can set our hopes on, and not a new jacket, but maybe a new week. Yeah, I'm, I'm, my heart is actually functionally set on a new period of time where suddenly everything will miraculously get better. Sometimes, maybe at this time of year particularly, we can be setting our hopes on a holiday. Yeah, you're just going and actually really what you're doing is your real heart hope is on that two-week block coming up. You do love Jesus and you kind of know in theory that he's where you're meant to put your hope. But actually, emotionally, if we could dive into your soul, actually, that's really where your hope would be. <laughs> when you get to my old age and your metabolism slows down, I'll be honest, you can start to set your hope on even being a certain weight and size. You can think, oh, that's what I'm actually really living for, to look 
a certain way. You, you might, some of you might be into sport or football, and you might be setting your hope on your team winning. Just, you get the point. You understand what I'm saying? Is that actually is that we understand the theory and the Bible? The Bible's really wonderful because it it, it 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 makes us realize that actually to put our hope into things, it's not wrong. Okay, we are designed as people, as humans, to have hope. But what we see, the context that we come to today, is that these Jewish Christians, it seems the fact that he's talking about a better hope, that's really key for this chapter. Because I think what he's wanting them to understand is that the danger that I've just outlined about Tom Shaw's life was actually the same for them. That although they had this Jesus now in their life and they were following Jesus, the great temptation that they were facing was actually functionally to put their emotional heart, their hopes, on something else. Now, although the something else for us seems a bit strange, and we've looked at it several times, it, it was their, the priesthood, which was that, that way of approaching God that they'd grown up with throughout the whole of their lives. Not just that, but the whole culture, their previous culture that they'd grown up with. But if you think about it, it's not that strange. You see, for them, the way that they had felt right and okay about themselves, the way that they'd had hope, in their lives previously, by going to the priests, by being part of Israel, was actually, first of all, in their mind, it meant that they got right with God regularly, vertically, but also horizontally, of course, it meant that they could high-five their family and their friends and be part of the culture. We're Jews, we're Jews together, this is what I do, yeah? So we, we might think it's strange, but listen, we have cultural equivalents in the UK, things that we run to all the time that actually we really functionally find our hope in. And what he's wanting to say is, and I love this, he doesn't smash them over the head with it and go, you wallies, why are you doing that? It's a tender tone that we see together. He's a tenderness to the writer. He says, there's a better hope. Do you see that? He's a sense in which he's saying those other things do bring you a kind of hope. And you can spend your life running there. Or you can discover a better hope. And that's what he's wanting to do today, a better hope. And the best way to understand this, verses 18 and 19, look at them with me. They're like a hinge for the whole of the chapter. The first part of the chapter, 1 to 17, is he's trying to lovingly undermine the previous hope that they went to. Okay, now this whole Melchizedek thing, I'm not going to go through it today. But if you want to understand it, this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to say to them, hey guys, look, I want to to honor the past, but I also want to move you to, to, to Jesus, right? The true hope. And what he does is he says... Listen, do you remember that guy who your great-great-grandfather, Abraham, who kind of through his family, the whole priesthood thing began? He once met a man, actually, a mysterious Mel, Melchizedek. And the point of that story that you can read in Genesis 18 was that when Abraham, who kind of represents that old way of hope, that the, the priesthood thing, when he met Melchizedek, even he said, ooh, you, you are superior. It says the superior and the inferior met. So what he's trying to say is even back then before the priesthood began, there was a hint that one day something better would come. And now Jesus is the true Melchizedek. Look at that. I've summarized the whole of the Melchizedek thing in 30 seconds. I'm very impressed by the grace of God in my life. You might want to look at it in your own time as well, just to check out what I've said. So verse 18 is kind of looking back, saying, listen, we honor the past, but don't go back to those previous places that you get hope. And then verse 19, we read here, it says here, let's read the whole of those two verses. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That's strong words. Excuse me, that's the whole priesthood thing you're talking about. That's every place 
that you might put your hope, okay, it's useless. It's weakness is what he says in tenderness. For the law made nothing perfect. It means it didn't change you. You get to go back to it and back to it, but it never actually changed you. And then he says, but on the other hand, with a glint in his eye, a better hope, capital B, capital H, is introduced. His name's Jesus, through which we draw near to God. Let's pray and dive in. Jesus, we love you. We need you. And we ask that you will just fill this room with your spirit today. Wean us off the places that we go for alternative hope. Let our hearts be centered on you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, we read that. We want that. We're excited. The million dollar question though is how? How do I actually live in the good of that, right? How do we do it? And what he does is he doesn't just go do it and scream and then leave. He actually then gives in the following few verses two breathtaking reasons to enable us to make Jesus the true hope in our life. Two things that tower over any other hope which you can put your heart onto. Number one, that he is permanent in contrast to any other hope. And he is perfect. He is perfect in comparison with any other hope. We're going to come back to worship in a few minutes. I'm a little bit excited already because this Jesus is wonderful. First of all, he is permanent. You see, we see here in verses 23, read with me. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He continues forever. Now, listen, what he's doing is he's trying to help their brains understand what's happened. Now, the priesthood was a good thing. The priesthood was a wonderful thing. When you read the Old Testament, the world was without hope. God chose a people and he gave them the gift of the priests who were humble men, but ultimately were there to give hope to the people. When they mucked up, it wasn't curtains. What they did was they ran to the priest. The priest was symbolic of hope. Okay, and he honors that. But there was a small problemo with the, with the priests. They tended to die. In fact, they always died. So you just, just imagine, you know, you, you know, you go to this person, he's almost like a counselor or your best friend, this person you go to and you tell your innermost secrets, this priest, and then he dies. And what he's trying to say is even those people that you went to that gave you some kind of hope, they will always die. They weren't permanent. They weren't permanent. Now you've got to remember the context. Don't forget the context. What's the context? They have followed Jesus, and that didn't mean they go to the Simon Langton Boys School one in every three Sundays. What it meant was they'd lost their family, their friends, their work colleagues. Everyone had turned their back on them. They were experiencing persecution. So you see, for them, this issue of things changing <laughs> wasn't a small issue. When, when the writer dares to use the word permanent to a people who are going through the agony of everything changing, He's not doing that lightly. He's not doing that lightly. For them, the issue of what really in this life can I count on? What really in this life is not going to change was emotionally massive for them. Massive. And I don't know if you're like me, but honestly, I mean, I've never been through anything like they went through. But I still hate change. I hate it when Morrisons move everything around. <laughs> I, I'm still flummoxed a year on. I know, you're feeling my hurt. I, I look at my family right now. Poppy's three, Daisy's eight. It is this dream age. Oh, you get a whole night's sleep. Hallelujah. 
And they haven't gone all kind of like crazy in their teenage years. They're just this beautiful, it's like this little ball of gorgeousness, these three girls. And, and I find myself saying, don't you ever change. And my heart is unconsciously on that. Some of you have got beautiful friends and they're a gift from God. And unconsciously, you actually functionally put your hope on that never changing. Some of you have got beautiful houses and you've moved to those lovely houses. And then suddenly the development's about to happen. You know the NIMBY thing, not in my backyard? That is a scream of the hearts of everyone in this world who, has, who lives in certain places. Don't let it change. Don't let it change where I live. Small group. Many of you in small groups and some of you in small groups that you love. And unconsciously what we want is just to make sure it never changes. But the reality is, is everyone and everything changes. It does. Now, this is the million dollar question. If you are, if your heart is actually set on the hope that nothing will change, when it does change, you will get hurt. Hope and hurt are just a heartbeat away from each other. What you put your hope on, it's not Christ, what you put your hope on when it disappoints will always lead to hurt. I remember the summer of 2013, the summer of hurt for me. In 24 hours, three things happened that were just for me, and I'll do my best to explain them, but sometimes these things don't sound that dramatic, but to you, they really, really are. I went to this meeting of these leaders of the movement they were a part of, um, these apostles in London. And the first thing that dawned on me was, as they were discussing, the, the previous leader, a guy called Terry Virgo, who had led the movement for 40 years, he had stepped aside from leading the whole thing. And it, it hit me. It just hit me. And I had this involuntary grief. They were all very relaxed about it. They'd processed it already. And I was sitting there on the, on the brink of tears because I love this man. And then the second thing was, because of that, it meant that an event that I'd had the privilege of leading for 10 years with ultimately thousands of students and 20s from across the world coming to called Mobilize was no longer going to happen. And I tell you, in that kind of meeting, you want to be together. You want to be like, you know, impressive. I was this close to bobbing like a baby and not in a good way. I had to leave that meeting. I remember leaving it and very, very promptly, like just jumping on the tube. And I just felt this like wave of grief for those two reasons. And then when I got home, I remember picking up my emails and, and Tim had said, Tom, just to prepare yourself, after three years of working and lots of money, it looks like the council are going to pull the plug on the building. And I remember that night, it wasn't a good night. I remember sitting in my lounge and as the night, as it got darker outside, I just didn't bother putting the lights on. Have you ever done that? You're just sitting there in the dark. It just feels appropriate somehow. Sitting in this dark room for like two hours. It was just, it was very hard. And, and some of you have been through far bigger things than that. But you know what I'm saying. You know that what you put your hope in, if it's not Jesus, will ultimately, will ultimately let you down and cause great hurt. Now, this is the deal. That was a very painful experience, but it was also one of the most precious experiences of my life. Because what it allowed me to begin to realize was when I put this thing, this precious, tender thing called my heart and my soul, which is so fragile, when I put it anywhere other than Jesus, anywhere, even, even with my kids, my kids will grow up and change. My, your small group will change. Your friends probably will at some point leave or go away or do something else. 
things change. And what I realized, and what this is telling us, is that ultimately, Jesus is the only one who is permanent. He is the only one who continues forever. He is the only one. And at the center of our faith as Christians, at the center of our faith is an unchanging, permanent thing called Calvary. Hallelujah. It's the event of the universe. It's the point where the unchanging grace of God was revealed so clearly, where Jesus himself came from heaven, the the Son of God, and went to the cross to die in my place and in your place. An unchanging cornerstone that we build our lives on. It's a past tense thing. It happened. It will never change. It will never be altered. We build our life on the cross of Christ because it's permanent. But what this is actually talking about, this passage, is not actually talking so much about a past event, although that's wonderful, that has saved us, as Christians say. But actually, he's talking about a present and ongoing work of Jesus that we often just ignore. We think about salvation just being the cross, right? That's where it's all about, and now we're just existing. Whereas actually, he's talking about a present, ongoing, stunning, active salvation that Jesus is now bringing. Look with me here. He says, this priesthood, it carries on. This priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Verse 25, because of that, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, these guys needed to understand that this Jesus, who they'd heard about decades earlier, had gone to Calvary and died for them and come back from the dead. They needed to understand that he hadn't just done that, but that now he was alive and well and saving them. You see, sometimes as Christians, we can kind of think, if I was only at the cross, if I'd just been there and actually seen it happen, I would have just known. I would never doubt again. You know, if I could just have seen it with my eyes. And what he's wanting to say is, do you understand the same, the same Jesus who was active and busy, shall we say, in saving you at the cross? He is just as active and busy right now, saving you ongoingly throughout your entire life. He's not some distant Jesus who sort of, whoo, I've collapsed in a heap after Calvary because I'm so tired. He carries on. There's an energy to these verses that you must feel, church. You must feel. He's saying that right now in East Kent in the 21st century, you can't see him with your physical eyes, but the, the God of the universe, he never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's always, always working for you. That's why we can ultimately always rest in our faith, knowing that he lives to make intercession for us. I love this. And what's so fascinating is, as I read about this, apparently is that rabbis would not pray or intercede for their people. That's fascinating. They would do many things. They would teach the people. They would do lots. But for some reason, they wouldn't actually intercede for them. Apparently, in their minds, they thought that was reserved for angels. Angels would intercede for the people of Israel. It's fascinating. I never knew that. Now, what is fascinating is, therefore, when this writer says to them, you have a priest who is absolutely committed to interceding for you. You know, so much you see in the, in the New Testament, Jesus, he's interceding for his friends. It says in John, to, John 17, Jesus, that whole chapter is Jesus praying for you. He's praying for you. God is praying for you. That blows my mind. He's interceding for you all the time. And what I really love about this is he doesn't say, if you draw near to him, he then intercedes. He says, he lives to make intercession for you. Therefore, draw near. 
Do you see the difference? Sometimes you live your Christian life thinking, if I draw near, then God will reward me by kind of praying and be nice. No, no, no. He lives to make intercession for you. That's language of people who are queuing up for the X Factor. You know, how important is this to you? I live for music. I live to be famous. I live for it. This is the language of passion and commitment that Jesus Christ, even if, can I be provoking, even if in your Christian life you never draw near to him, he still lives to make intercession for you. He still lives for that. It's like my raison d'etre is to live to pray for these beloved people who most of the time don't even bother to draw near to me. It's mind-blowing. He is so permanent. He is so steadfast for these people who had lost everything. The people that they'd relied on, the people that they'd gone to, it's this picture he wants them to be overwhelmed by of this great high priest, this Jesus, who is busy, active in heaven, 24 hours a day, praying for you. It's mind-blowing. It's absolutely wonderful. One of the... um, Things that often happens um, in the morning is me and Josie will tend to wake up before the girls. And um, quite often, uh, the, you know, we'll have a cup of tea in bed. And one of the things we first often talk about is, uh, oh, we'll say, oh, you should have seen Poppy yesterday. Oh, my, you should. Oh, did you she said this thing and she did that thing. And, oh my, and then we'll have a little laugh. And it'll be a lovely way to start the day. And then we'll often go, oh, let's just have a quick pray. And we'll end up sort of chatting and praying about one of the kids. It's something that we often just end up doing. But you know what often seems to happen, bizarrely, is then a few moments later, there's a little shuffle. And in comes Poppy Grace with her huge, great white afro of hair. And she comes in half six in the morning. And this is what we'll say. We'll say, Pops, Pop, this is crazy. We were were literally just talking about you. In fact, darling, we were praying for you. Why should we pray for you now? So she'll jump into bed. And this is the thing, no matter who it is of the kids, even, you know, you know it's like first thing in the morning, they, they come in, they look absolutely knackered, completely exhausted. They've just sort of stumbled in like this. But as soon as they hear dad say to them or mum say to them, do you know what, darling? We were just talking about you. Their whole demeanor changes. It's just like this energy injection in their souls. Like, really? What were you saying? Tell me, dad. La, 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 la. We just say how wonderful you are. It doesn't really matter. Now, this is, do you understand? They draw near. They draw near. And they come into the overflow that's already happening. As Christians, God says, draw near. Draw near to the Trinity. Draw near to the bedroom. Get near to God's throne room where he is ridiculously passionate and excited about you. It's a picture of the Trinity. The fact that Jesus is constantly talking to the Father. The Father's talking to you. If you read Psalm 139, it talks about God knowing you, forming you. And it says, halfway through, it says, How many and amazing are your thoughts, O Lord? And in that context, one translation says, How many are your thoughts, O Lord, about me? More than the sand on the seashore. I like that. That whole chapter is about the ridiculous scandal of a God, a Trinitarian God, who is wildly passionate about you. Now listen, this is important. This is important that we get this. Do you agree? It's really important that we live with this picture that this is the God who is for us or else we will just, what will happen is we will functionally never put our hope in that God. And he says, listen, when everything changes in your life, when your friends move on, when your your body starts to fail you, when your emotions start to fail you, you were Mrs. Solid and then suddenly your emotions are down and everything changes. When the place that you live changes, where where your kids change, when everything changes around you, he wants us to be filled with this incredible picture 
to draw near to this picture of a Jesus who never, ever stops praying for you, loving you, joining with the Father. That's what's happening right now with you, believe it or not. You may never draw near. He still lives to make intercession for you. Hallelujah. It's amazing. This is ridiculous. We should be spinning around or something. This doesn't, why would God do this? Why would God love us so much? It doesn't make any kind of sense. And you know, when you're, and God, this is the thing, is he will, he will kick. We have a God who kicked over the tables, right? He's not polite. He will kick over the table that you're leaning on. If your hope is on anything else, you'll go, oh, I don't like that. I love them far too much. Whoops, it daisy Bosh, there he goes. And you're on your face and he goes, look at me. Look at the one who lives to make intercession for you. Are you persuaded that Calvary was the most breathtaking work of God's energy and passion and busyness? Let's put it in those terms. Yes? Is he less busy now? No. <laughs> no. He isn't. He, and right now, I just feel for some of you, there's like a battle of faith. It's just, can I really believe? Yes, you can believe this. But it gets even better. Because it's not just that he is a priest. He is the one who will never change. And he wants your hope of your heart more and more and more on him. It's not just that he is the permanent one. It is also that he is the perfect one. Look with me at these next verses. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, look at this, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Now, what the writer's trying to do, the real heart of what he's saying is this. I've contrasted changing priests with the unchanging Jesus. Right, we got that, jing. Now what he's doing is, I want to now turn up the contrast between weak, sinful, failing priests and Jesus, who is perfect. Now he's trying to turn up the contrast, not between things that change and don't change, but between things that are ultimately imperfect and someone who is perfect. Again, think about this. For them in their context, this would have been huge. The ones that they'd gone to, their culture around them, that they may well have kind of idolized the Jewish way of life, had turned its back on them. It hadn't recognized the Messiah. They hadn't agreed with them that actually that it seems that they were experiencing terrible persecution from people that they may well have thought were perfect and wonderful. And what he's trying to say is, listen, listen, there is a huge tendency in every heart to look for perfection in the wrong place. There is a huge tendency to look for perfection in the wrong place. You see, I, I, I say the phrases like we all do, you know, nobody's perfect. I get the phrase. But I hate not being perfect. I hate it. And even saying that, you might think, that's a bit strange, Tom. But let me ask you, are you driven? Are you driven with your job? Do, you, do, do things basically need to be perfect? Are you surprised when things fail under your leadership? You're like me then. Okay? You might not think it. You are. Sorry about that. The reality is, we think we know we're not perfect, but most of us in our souls actually hate it. We don't boast in our weaknesses. I bury my weaknesses. I give polite weaknesses, you know, the acceptable ones, the churchy ones. Oh, I don't pray as much as I should. Oh, he's so self-disclosing. 
You know? We do that, don't we? You know what I'm saying? Yes? Yeah, we do. Because actually, deep down, most of us are perfectionists in one area or another. And we hate it when there's weaknesses. We, we want things to be perfect. I want my parents to have a perfect attitude to my family and my kids. I want them to perfectly understand how to serve me and Josie. I want my friends to give me perfect advice. You know, I'm an advice searcher person. You know, many of us are. You know, I, I find if there's different questions, I won't just ask one or two. I'll endlessly be asking people for their advice. And that's because actually what I think is that next one, that next advice, that will be the perfect one. That will be the one that just solves everything. We can be like that. Or we can be, I've got more loose ends in my life than I have ever known possible. More things I don't know the answer to, more questions that are up in the air. And I can find myself, because I'm a perfectionist, thinking if I can just solve that next one, just one more before sleep, then I'll reach this perfect place in my heart. And what I'm doing is I'm actually putting my hope in things or people being perfect, either myself or any of those many things I've just listed. And I would, if I was a betting man, I would bet that there's at least one or two of you here who might be somewhat similar. But here's the reality, and this is honestly really true. You're not perfect. And anything or anyone that you put the weight of expectation of perfection on, anything or anyone other than Jesus, will ultimately come crashing down. And you, if you put your heart there, you will experience hurt. I had the um, humorous and painful experience a few weeks ago of a friend of mine coming up to me after a sermon and he came up to me, he knows I'm going to say this, by the way, he doesn't mind. And he came up to me and said, Tom, I just want to make a confession. I was like, right. And he said, um, for the last year, I've been doubting your ability to lead this church. I was like, right. And I thought he was going to say, but after hearing you just preach so well, Tom, after today, my confidence has been restored. It never came. The, uh, the nice bit never came. Now, I, think, I think he was trying to get to that nice bit. It never actually came. But as I thought about it, I thought to myself, first, you know, you feel a little bit hurt, but you think, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm flattered he's taken eight years to get to the point of, of, of actually realizing, of course I don't have the ability to lead this church. Whatever made you think I had the ability to lead this church? Of course I don't. And actually, when, when you come to that place of realizing the job you're in, the role you're in, anything really, you don't have the ability to do it. Of course you don't. Actually, rather than it being a depressing thing, it's actually the most liberating thing in the world. Because what we're doing is we're trying to put our hope and weight of expectation of perfection on anywhere apart from Jesus. And when we do that, it always, always fails. And what he says is, I want you to understand, look at these verses here. The language of verse 26 is stunning. He's talking about a perfect saviour. Do you see this? He says, this, this high priest who is holy, that means separate, beautiful. He's innocent. He's unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. What he's trying to do is saying, do you understand the perfection of this Jesus that you are more intimate with than even the breath in your lungs? Do you understand the perfection of him? No, you don't. Nor do I. We have a tiny glimpse of it this side of eternity. He's trying to say the level of perfection of this Jesus now that you go to. You see, we can think of my first point of like Jesus being busy and interceding for us. You could, you know, be forgiven for thinking Jesus is like, I don't know, you know, a well-meaning but animated protester outside the Houses of Government, you know, the House of Parliament or whatever, sort of arguing to the government for some sort of change. That's not the picture of Jesus at all. He's holy. He's unstained. He's a perfect son. He has 
the voice and the ear of the Father. Which means even the smallest whisper that Jesus makes on your behalf, even the smallest whisper has the immediate attention of the Father. That's an amazing thing. I just heard recently of just two people I know who've either got jobs or job interviews and actually at a human level, it's because they knew someone who knew the boss of a company. When you, when you know someone who's high up, it, it gives you access. And this is what he's ta- talking about here. So he's saying, you have access now through Jesus to the Father. To the Father. Which means this holy, unstained one that you are now somehow mysteriously in and through, it means now that this perfect one, he is able to bear the weight of your expectation of perfection. And what he's done is so brilliant because I love this. Verse 26 is this kind of like a fireworks verse. You know those where it's just like, he's like, he's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. It's this amazing kind of like, oh, feast of a verse. And then it's like verse 27, like crunching through the gears. He has no need like these high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins. And then, do you see the contrast there? There's this massive contrast between the wonder and the amazement of Jesus who is perfect in verse 26 and the high priest that they were connected with in 27 who are anything but. Now think, why is he doing that? Why is he deliberately saying, he's almost trying to say to them, do you remember guys when you mucked up and you went to the high priest and this wonderful high priest that you went to and you somewhat idolized, hi Mr. High Priest, I've mucked up, I'm really sorry, here's my lamb. Can you go and solve with it? No problemo, leave it with me, with his cape on the back of his head. And then he turned around and said, oh, just one moment, I've actually mucked up loads myself. I've just got to sort myself out and get my own little animal. Uh, before I represent you, I actually have to, I have to make sure I'm okay with God as well. It's almost this slightly demeaning picture, deliberately. Verse 27 has got a very sort of earthy feel. It's like, do you remember? Those priests had to actually deal with their own sin before they could go to God. What he's trying to get them to understand is that every leader in this world, every person who we might try and put on a pedestal is actually utterly and completely sinned and flawed like us. That's what he's trying to get them to do. He's trying to create a huge separation almost between the wonder of the Jesus of verse 26 and the priesthood, which represents anywhere, listen, anything. It might not be the priesthood for you. It probably isn't. Anywhere or anything that you try and make perfect, anything, anything in your life that you would put in that bracket, he's saying it is unable to bear the weight. Now, why is he doing that? Because he wants them to be disillusioned with anything other than Jesus. He's deliberately wanting them to be disillusioned with their previous places that they went to for hope. He wants them to be disillusioned. It's fascinating. Why is he doing that? Because what he wants, see, the problem in our life, guys, it's not that we are not positive enough. It is that we are too positive about the wrong things. It's not that we are not positive enough. It's that we are far too positive about the thousand different places where we put that weight of expectation, your children becoming a certain way, your spouse becoming a certain person, your next job that you're going for, the next place that you might go to, the the friends that you have around you, you, about yourself. What he's saying is, is actually, when you look at verse 27, he wants them to be disillusioned so that they would therefore understand that the only place that we can truly find 
that can bear the weight of that deep desire in us for expectation of perfection is Jesus alone. That's why he's saying, set it aside. The first verses we read, set it aside. It's useless. It's weakness. Wherever you look for, for that perfection, probably including yourself, he's saying, set it aside. Don't let it be the place that you run to. Don't let it be the place that your heart goes to. Don't look for friends or a role in church or your so, you know, as I was praying for some, I know for me like, and, and many, when you're even thinking before you get married, you can think that your, your partner is going to be perfect. <laughs> and so you, you kind of get into this cycle of expecting perfection and it can be very unhelpful. I love the Bible. It says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. That's it. It's a good thing. It's very flawed. It's going to be lots of challenges, but it's a good thing. And it's almost a summary of anything in your life. Anything. He who has kids finds a good thing. But don't ever think that they're going to be don't put the weight of expectation of perfection. Don't do that on them. Don't put it on your friends. Don't put it on your health. Don't put it on your bank balance. Don't put it on your reputation or the job that you're loving. Now. Don't do that. Don't do that. Nothing. Listen, can I even say this? Don't even put it on church. Don't put it on church. I love church. You might have gathered that. I give my life for the local church. I love church. But the Bible says... We have this treasure, that's Jesus, where? In a palace of impressiveness. Oh no, in a jar of clay. It's deliberately saying, listen, church is amazing. <laughs> but you know what? The only good thing going for us ultimately is Jesus. I, I, uh, there was a, a chap who left the church a little while ago and he wrote to me. Um, and it's quite a firm letter. And uh, really what came out was he was saying that I think when I think about this church that you don't pray enough, um, that you don't do this right, that this is not right and this isn't good enough. And at first it was like, like a bit like a sort of machine gun of different things. And I felt a little bit upset, if I'm honest, and a bit defensive, you know. But then I thought about it, I thought, do you know what? He's kind of right. We probably don't pray enough. You know, we probably don't in some ways love other people enough. I probably don't love my neighbor in the way I probably should. I probably don't care for people as I should. I and I thought about it. The more I thought about it, I thought, do you know what? In a way, at one level, he's completely right. And do you know what? And I wrote back. And it was just God just gave me this like, revelation of grace. Just like, do you know, I wrote back to say, do you know what? I absolutely agree with you in so many ways. I think I'm, I'm stunned that there's anyone in this church under my leadership. And I genuinely meant I thought, we, I, there's nothing, I have nothing going for this church apart from Jesus. Amen? I mean, I love this hall, but you know what I'm saying? It's the normal hall, the 1960s hall in a field somewhere. And you just think, you know, we do our best and everything, but the only one thing going for this thing, the only thing that can bear the weight of our expectation of perfection is what? It's Jesus. He is the one, hallelujah. And when that starts to really get into your soul, it really does change emotionally how you live. It's not just some Sunday truth. It starts to change how you live because what happens is it frees you to start to actually be able to fail. Isn't it weird? It actually allows you to start to fail a bit, which sounds so weird. But, but God allows us that so that we can go, do you know what? I was putting my, my, my weight of hope on all these other things. And, and you see, when you look at this verse here, and we'll finish with this. When we come here, in this, in this verse here, 28, it says, he is exalted above the heavens. What he's saying is there is only one person who is always up. Do you understand that? You see, what, in our lives, what we do is there's Jesus one of many different places we put our hope of perfection. 
And actually what happens is we put our hope here and then, oh, it fails. And, and, our, and we say phrases like, oh, I had such high hopes for her as a friend. And it just went wrong. She let me down. I had such high hopes for my work and they didn't promote me. I had such high hopes that I would fly in this role and it went horrendously wrong every time I tried to do it. And do you know what? I think there's a part of God which is going, yoo-hoo, over here, I'm the only one who's exalted. When our hopes go down on everything else, there's only one left remaining. Hallelujah. And the quicker we learn that in our lives, the quicker. Do you know what? You can actually realize the pressure is off. The pressure is off. Your life is not meant to work. Do you realize that? You're not, we, we think that actually when you follow Jesus, what it means is if I do these certain things, then my kids will grow up really well and I will have this nice life. And, and actually that does often happen because God's kind. But the only guaranteed promise that you get is Jesus. That's the only one. And rather than that being depressing, that's actually the most amazing thing in the world. Because do you know what? When we meet him, we meet this one who is exalted that we kind of understand a little bit now. When we actually meet him, there will not be a single complaint in our hearts. Do you know that? When we finally meet him, there will be no sense of us going, oh, well, there you are. Oh, I thought you were going to be more amazing than that. We will be face down worshipping and he'll be saying, don't do that. Stand up. Look at me. You're my beloved. You see, the quicker we learn in our lives that actually only he can bear the weight of that expectation of perfection. Listen, your marriages are going to get saved. The quicker you learn that. Don't put that on your spouse. Don't put that on your kids. Don't put it on anywhere else. It will change the way you live. It will change everything because suddenly, although those things are good and I want them and I desire as many blessings as the Lord would give me, the more that we realize, do you know what? Actually, it is Jesus and Jesus alone. And that is not some hardship. That is utter joy. He is a treasure, capital T. Hallelujah. Let's stand to our feet. But Sam, can you lead us in worship? Anyone here like to worship this Jesus? I'd like to worship this Jesus. Let me just pray for us. Lord Jesus, we just want to, even now, just run to you. We just want to run to you, Lord. We don't want anything to get in the way, Lord, or rob the joy that you have for us. Lord, right now, if there's things in your heart that you just, the Holy Spirit has been just allowing you to see, things that you've put your hope in. Oh, this week has been painful as I prepared this. I must have had 30, 40 things that he's just shown me. You're putting your hope there. You're putting your hope here. You're putting your hope there. Hope in a perfect presentation of this truth. Whatever, it just goes on and on. Right now, give it to him. Even allow that picture of a king who is exalted. And he's just, it's almost like he's got his hands out. And he's saying, only I am strong enough. Only I am permanent enough to bear your deep longing. Your deep longing for that thing that's perfect. Your, your deepest longing right now. Some of you have come and honestly, your, your hopes have been on other things that, are, remember, they're not bad things. They're not bad things. But God today has been saying, I want, I want you to learn to put your heart, your heart, your heart. You're so, it's such a fragile thing. Only in the hands of this Jesus.
And some of you right now, just before we even worship and celebrate, just as a tender moment, I just want you just to embrace, just to say, Lord, my heart has got hurt because I've, I've put it on something that was a good thing rather than on a God thing, on you. And just even now, say, Lord, I settle it in my heart, Lord, and I want, I want you to teach me. I want you to teach me to follow Jesus means I put everything just in you. Lord Jesus, teach us, lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.